Before we begin, I'd like to acknowledge the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation as the traditional custodians of the land on which we record this podcast and pay our respects to their elders, past, present and future. I'm Dr. Jody, and as an anxiety expert and adult child and adolescent doctor of clinical psychology, I'm on a mission to create a world where every person can manage anxiety and thrive. Over the last 30 years, I've coached global organizations and worked across clinical and educational settings, including Harvard Medical School. In 2015, I founded The Anxiety Clinic with a purpose to help adults, kids and teens to overcome anxiety, stress, behavioral challenges, low mood and burnout and live life with happiness and well-being. As a keynote speaker and executive coach, I love to help individuals, leaders and teams to master their mindset, enhance well-being and achieve resilient high performance. I also share my knowledge in my best-selling book, The Mind Strength Method, Four Steps to Curb Anxiety, Conquer Worry, and Build Resilience. Join me as I go in session with celebrities, elite athletes, and business leaders to find out how they've leveraged the superpower of anxiety, risen above challenges, and aligned to passion and purpose. I am here today with Lewis Ehrlich, who is a phenomenal sportsman and incredible professional. And we've worked together for many years now, helping you, Lou, to flourish and thrive. And uh, it's an absolute joy to be connecting with you today. I'm so excited to have a chat about the incredible things that you have done in your life. How are you doing? Thanks, Jody. Good to be here. Thanks for having me. So you've been traveling, you're doing a, a few stints in Sydney and you've been overseas. What's going on in your life at the moment? I'm working full-time as a dentist in the city at Sydney Holistic Dental Centre. And yeah, we run a busy practice there, which is keeping me out of trouble. And I'm also doing a master's overseas in at, at Oxford University in evidence-based medicine and healthcare. So yeah, definitely enjoying that. And I promised myself I'd stop studying, but I just can't stop at the moment. So yeah, that's keeping me busy. Amazing. Yeah, I was going to say, so you're not busy at all, right? (laughs) (laughs) Lots of spare time in your life. I wouldn't imagine there would be. And you, Lou, are the epitome of what I consider the superpower of anxiety. You know, you are so heart-driven and so passionate about making a difference in your professional world and the constant value of continual improvement and evidence-based practice. So what has inspired you to do this further education in Oxford at the moment? I think my previous degree, which was a postgraduate degree in dental implant surgery, we really dove into a lot of analyzing scientific research and actually got me questioning whether or not everything that I was doing was that way inclined. I'm not saying that I never practiced evidence-based stuff, but it just basically inspired me to really enjoy diving into data and research and understanding what's good research, bad research. Yeah, so just so I can help my patients even more and I just find professionally it's it's quite interesting. So, you know, I'm able to apply that to general health things, not just oral health. And I'm I'm really interested in the connections between oral health and, and general health. And I like living a healthy lifestyle myself. And so just being able to determine what's good and bad research has just inspired me. So I applied to some universities in America and also over at Oxford and got into Oxford and because I'd already studied in America. 
I thought it would be nice to have studied in America and in Australia and in the UK just to to get a different experience. Yeah, how fantastic. And I can so relate to what you're saying about the importance of holistic approach to care. And, you know, I'm, I'm very much about the mind-body connection. And for you, it is about taking this holistic approach and continual improvement and uh, evidence-based practice are core to my values as well. So it really resonates with me. Congratulations on leaning into further study. That's a, <laughs> That's an inspiring challenge. Well done to you. You. How are you finding the juggle across all of these, you know, balancing academics now with managing a very busy practice as well as life outside of the work that you're doing? Yeah, I think it's a challenge, particularly around assignment deadline times, you know, like for example, two weeks ago, I would finish work at about 7pm, get home 7pm, and then I'd dive into my assignment, which would I'd be up to sort of one, two in the morning for a good couple of weeks there, which was quite tiring because I love my early nights. So I'm normally in bed by about 9.30, 10. So it was a bit of a struggle for me. But I think some balance in your life gets affected by taking on those sorts of challenges. I think it would be a different thing if I wasn't working as much as I, I did it in the clinic. But yeah, I think something has to give somewhere and it's just whether or not you prioritize it enough to kind of make that make sense for you. So at this stage, it, it made sense and I've met some amazing people over there and there's orthopedic surgeons, oncologists and anesthetists and amazing nurses from all around the world that I've, I've met in my, in my course. So, you know, for me to hear other people's perspectives on, on how they they do health and and what they're about. It's pretty amazing. And what an incredible environment. And as you say, this uh, cross-pollination of phenomenal practitioners across different areas, just with the underpinning of a value of evidence-based medicine, how inspiring. And so what are you doing at the moment to protect yourself against burnout, given how much you're covering in your life? I really find that I get a lot of enjoyment out of sport so for me I'm, I'm training quite hard for my sprinting and I find that that's almost really cathartic for me because it's an individual sport I've traditionally grown up playing cricket and soccer which have been team-based sports at work I'm, I'm surrounded by a massive team there's about 28 of us at our clinic and then during this master's program there's a whole bunch of us doing it so there's almost some teamwork there so it's been an interesting switch for me because I find that when I'm doing my sprinting it's just me and my coach or it's just me on my own and I find that that's really quite almost meditative for me because I'm focusing on my my running technique and my training and I'm actually just in the zone you know I can just be with my own thoughts and I can think things through and I find that really helps and then from time to time I actually go through and do some meditation as well. I've been better at it in the past, but more consistent with it. But I definitely enjoy doing that and my ice baths and my saunas and things like that. So I've got a got a full recovery center here at my house. Um, How stunning. And I, and I find uh, I find that that's also helps me kind of fill up my cup. You have historically done a lot of high performing work in the sporting arena and you continue to do that. I'd love to hear of some of the things that you're doing at the moment with sport alongside all of these other things. So you're running. How's that going? Yeah, it's pretty good. One thing I found, because I used to play high-level cricket and high-level soccer, that was a full-time gig for me when I was younger in my early 20s. And I actually found that that brought me so much joy. And then we kind of get to an age and we just think we just don't it's almost like a societal societal norm that we don't get the most out of our bodies anymore. 
probably prematurely. Obviously, there's an aging process at, at play, which you can't stop, but you can slow. And I found that it was actually quite a, I don't know, I suppose down is a bit of a feeling because you're, you're so used to being that sports guy that everyone knows that you're you're playing at a good level and you almost get tied to that identity. And then when you lose that identity and you go into another field, like say dentistry in my case, I found that it was like, particularly in the first year or so, it was actually quite sad for me to let go of that part of my life. So I thought it's actually not a bad thing to, my body still works. I still look after it. I'm still young and athletic. So I thought, well, what, what's a sport that I could do that I'm not going to risk injury for and miss work for? Cause obviously I've got patients to look after. Mm-hmm. And so I've always been into my sprinting. So I used to sprint for my soccer, mm-hmm. but now I'm just focused on my sprinting. So I, I train about three or four times a week, sometimes with my coach. And then I compete at state titles. I went to the New South Wales championships, the ACT championships. I tried to make open nationals, but didn't quite get there last year because I'm running against 20-year-olds, which is tough. But I won the state title in the over 35s, which was good fun. And yeah, I just really like competing. And I find that that just keeps me focused and, and not so down about missing my team sports that I played in the, in the past. Yeah. How bloody awesome is that? You know, being really purposeful in, in making sure that you fill up your cup with the things that are important to you. And that's incredible. Congratulations on those amazing outcomes and putting in the big effort, as you say. And. And so not having the, the team sport, but really finding your niche in the running um, space. So recognizing that you don't work with half measures. <laughs> what I know about you is really giving the best that you have in all of these areas, in your professional life, in your personal life, in the sporting arena. But for elite athletes, it very much is about that mind-body connection and bringing it back to holistic health. What do you think are the mindset tools that you use to give yourself the edge on um, the running field? It's actually been a really interesting one for me with the mind-body connection because most of the people that I compete against have actually been running for about a decade. And so they've got a really big data set. So it's actually kind of strange to change sports in a way because in soccer, you've got 10 other people on your team. If you make a mistake or you miss a shot or miss something that you should have scored on, then chances are you'll get another chance or a few chances during the game. Whereas sprinting's really cutthroat because if, if you make a mistake, you ruin your your start or you don't get a good start. It's just over, you know, really quickly and there's nothing that you can really do about it. And yes. so it's a really strange headspace to be in because I've had to control my nerves a lot on the starting block because it's very different because it's basically all or nothing and you don't get another shot until the next week. So it's an unforgiving sport. And so I've actually found it quite challenging to change my headspace from one where I knew that I was going to get other opportunities when I didn't do as well as I thought, say on the soccer field, to something that's just so unforgiving. So it's definitely something I'm trying to work on, trying to stay calm and run as though I'm running at training. But on the day, it can be quite strange. You know, like the other season, I was running against someone who went to the world titles and he was in the next lane next to me. And I'm just thinking, it's so hard to not distract yourself and think about that and just be in your zone. So it's, I don't have the data set that other people have. And I've found that I've really needed to work on it. So I've spent the off season just kind of doing more visualization techniques and relaxation techniques and listening to a certain type of music before the races that make me calm. But yeah, it's a, even though I've played sports my whole life, it, it's such a unique sport in that sense. And it's been quite, quite challenging for me, actually. How um, fascinating and recognizing the 100 meter sprint, as you say, there's no 
points of uh, forgiveness in there. You have to be constantly on and manage those nerves or realign those nerves. I love to talk about the difference between the push away from the fear of stuffing up to the pull towards that heart-driven space that really focuses on your purpose in that moment and just kicking the shit out of your goals in that moment, which is, yeah, one foot in front of another at pace. Go you. I love it that you do not let fear get in the way and you just continue to smash it and continue to take steps out of your comfort zone. And I've got more swear words that are coming to mind, but I'm not going to use them. I'm just say, we say not going to let fear get in the way, right? How do you go about that? You know, you say that the nerves are there, but you do not let fear get in the way because you achieve your outcomes. You achieve phenomenal outcome. In the moment, I'm sensing that you leverage that adrenaline and you do bring it back to heart, which, you know, is a tool and visualizing the win. But really, as you say, there's, there's room for improvement there. But is there anything else that you're doing now in the current race? You mentioned that you are visualizing, let's say that this is a training experience as opposed to the race. What else is enabling you to get the results? I think it's actually just consistency of training. I mean, it sounds cliche, but if you put in the work, you normally get the results. It's pretty tried and true formula, I suppose. If I cut corners and I'm not consistent with my training, then you notice it both in a mental aspect because you're not confident in your ability, but also just physiologically, you're going to perform a lot better if you've you've done the work. So I think that's the main thing is I've got a program that I follow. My coach has given me that and then I just make sure I hit the targets. And if I hit the targets, I know that I'll not necessarily get it 100% right, but I'll get close enough. So I think that just simplifying it down to doing the work and then focusing on the simple cues for my event. And I find that if I can just focus on that, I don't get distracted by the noise so much. Mm. I find that that's the same with with my study. I just kind of try and hit targets and make sure that I'm not uh, getting too lazy and you know, making sure that my self-talk is positive and that I can actually do it and put in the work. So yeah, I just try and hit targets all the time. I love that. And I love that you bring it back to that consistency of training and really digging deep on that muscle memory and the repetition is so powerful. Ultimately, you are creating certainty and you're building neural pathways of certainty that really does help to eliminate stress and eliminate fear of failure when you can build certainty in that process. So how good is that? There's been some challenges along the way in your life and what I know about you, and you are phenomenally resilient and you dig deep and don't let knockbacks get in the way of achieving phenomenal outcome. Let's talk about your life and some of the challenges that have been there along the way and some of the challenges with anxiety. Let's go back to when you were young. Tell me a little bit about life when you were growing up. I really enjoyed my childhood. I was um, very lucky and, you know, st- obviously still lucky to have amazing or well, one parent. Um, I'll get to that. But uh, yeah, my my mum and dad were very supportive and yeah, just had a really lovely upbringing. Sometimes when I think about someone says, oh, what was life like when you were really young? And just automatically, I'll just start smiling just because it was so, so nice, just so, so lovely. But yeah, when I was about seven, my mum got diagnosed with ovarian cancer. She had a three and a half year battle from when I was about seven to 10. Yeah, she unfortunately ended up losing that, that battle. Yeah, she definitely left a, a good imprint on me. And, you know, she was a, a really 
dedicated, hardworking lawyer and an amazing mum, and she was always there for me and my brother and my dad. It was a sad, sad thing to watch and thinking about myself as an adult now, you know, if I imagine a 10-year-old or a 7-year-old to, to 10 years of age going through that, I can appreciate how difficult it would have been, but I didn't know any better. Probably from an anxiety standpoint, I probably didn't know the meaning of any form of anxiousness prior to the age of seven. But as a result of what you see and the uncertainty and is it going to go your way? Is it not going to go your way? And seeing your mum suffer and some of the images that I've, I saw through those years, I, I, I really wouldn't wish on, on any young person, let alone an adult. So yeah, I think that there's definitely been some anxiousness, uncertainty that creeps up in my life even to this day as a result of that. But overall, I would say that for the most part, I'm a pretty laid back sort of person. But every now and again, you know, when I'm run down or when I'm too amped up or I'm not having enough downtime, filling up my cup, doing things that I, I like, I notice that I certainly get that anxiety creeping up on me. So that's probably the big thing in my life that, that's happened, but obviously had some other sort of health scares in my family that that have worked out reasonably well, thank goodness. But yeah, that was a big one for me. Yeah, so incredibly tough. And at such an age, age seven to age 10, going through that, how did you cope as a young boy? What were some of the things that helped you to get through at the time? For the most part, I couldn't have gotten through it without my dad. So he was, mm. he was obviously amazing. He was dealing with the love of his life, you know, basically mm. losing a, ba- slow, a slow battle with it. Um, but also making sure we we're okay and looking after our emotional state. But I also had, you know, an amazing grandmother and family and my uncle and auntie and my cousins. They were all, they were all really supportive, which helped. But I just think getting on with everyday life helped as well, you know, like making sure I was heading into school and playing sports and hanging out with my friends and just creating this normality, which was obviously driven by my father, definitely helped. And, but yeah, I didn't really necessarily deal with it perfectly. I had some pretty extreme, what I now know is anxiety. I had some night terrors when I was seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, like even through my early teenage years, I remember consistently having those and I can still picture picture having them, which is obviously burning into your your memory. And yeah, so there was definitely definitely a struggle, but I it would have been a lot harder if I didn't have the support network um, you know, from my my brother and my dad and my family. Absolutely. And, you know, we, we draw on those support networks around us through tragedy and through traumatic life experiences. It's, we call those protective factors. And sometimes it's those elements in our lives that can be so tremendously helpful going through trauma is who can we connect with? Um, in our world, no matter, no matter who that person is or people, if there are some ways to connect through the challenging life experience that can be so, so helpful. So growing up on experiencing this very difficult, horrendous life experience, how, how did anxiety come up for you? You mentioned some of the night terrors and some of the experiences. What was going on as far as when anxiety showed up in your life? Um, yeah, so obviously I had those going on for a few years. Yeah. I remember being really run down when I was, I had glandular fever when I was coming towards the end of high school. And I found that whenever I got really run down, really, really tired, you know, which is part and parcel for glandular fever, I found that that's when my anxiety really picked up because I probably subconsciously thought 
having seen what happened with my mum, that if my health wasn't good, then I kind of associate that with an, a level of anxiousness, which I'm still working on. If I don't feel good, you know, if I'm really run down, too tired, just not feeling optimal, I'll, I can sense like an, an anxiousness creep in, which is good and bad. Sometimes it, at times it's gotten a little bit out of hand for a couple of days here or there, which has been quite debilitating. But yeah, overall, it's something that I'm, I've been able to get on top of just with psychology and getting out into nature and spending time with loved ones. I mean, at the end of the day, I'm not, I'm not overly unique in the sense that everyone, the moment you're born, you're, you're destined to have some sort of trauma in your life. You know, no one's getting out of here alive. So I think that overall, I, I'm, I find that I, I keep it pretty, pretty well in check but sometimes I actually find that like you say like you always say it's a superpower if you can just harness it and not let it get too much in the way. Absolutely. And, you know, it is that care factor. You are such a tremendously caring human being. You've got such a big heart and such beautiful values. Sounds like growing up with, with your family, what would you say are some of the values that were instilled by your mom and, and your dad growing up? I think just um, empathy, hard work, lots of care for other people. Yeah, just spending a lot of time on on friendships and connections and just having a, a good time, keeping it simple, you know, enjoying life. Even towards the end when my mother was really sick and she knew that she was probably not going to get out of it, she was still, she had her own legal firm and she would be sitting in bed unwell doing all the cases that she had to get done and she was just determined and driven. And yeah, I think that that certainly rubbed off on me, whether or not I was conscious of it, definitely subconsciously, I think it it's it's rubbed off on me for sure. Absolutely. And when we talk about the superpower of anxiety, it is really that care factor, that protective instinct, wanting to make sure that that you're well, that your family is well. And and so it's moving out of fear drivers and that worry story back into heart and back into your values um, and aligning to the things that matter most to you from a heart space rather than a fear space. So when that health anxiety is kicking in, what is worry telling you? I think it's basically just sort of telling me that I need to need to take a step back and relax and fill up my cup and spend time with people that make me feel really good and happy and yeah I just find that if I if I look after myself I find that it's it's often kept in in check and yeah sometimes I need to to check in with a neutral party as well to discuss some of the stuff that's that's creeping up on me so I think that that's probably Less so nowadays, but it was stigmatized as something as a, you know, a negative thing. But through my sports, you know, if you've got a sore knee, you go and get it treated. If your brain's, you know, needing some, needing some help to, you know, reaching out and getting some assistance and hearing it from a neutral voice, I find has always been really beneficial for me. 100%, 100%. And, you know, I suppose when worry is, is sort of bossing us around, it's, it kind of says, you got to know for sure that nothing bad is going to happen and we're never going to satisfy that goal. We're never going to satisfy that voice and it's always going to take us to focus in on worst case scenarios. But what you described sounds very much like a values driven perspective to say, I value health and well being. And so I'm going to focus on my health and well being as core to who I am. I value that holistic approach to respecting my mind, respecting my body. And it's starting to sit with the discomfort of uncertainty and recognizing you will never have certainty, but you can focus on effort around the things that you value, which is value is the superpower, that care factor, but 
sometimes worry in a health anxiety perspective can start to tip us into avoidance or tip us into overchecking or all of these sorts of things. When worry is getting in the way and that I must know for sure that nothing bad is going to happen, what would be some of the fear-driven actions, Lou, that you recognize can come up in that health anxiety context? I think you can just go overboard with looking at maybe testing or is there something wrong? Do I need to go and check this out or that out with tests, like actual med- medical tests? Or, you know, I might be feeling really run down or tired. Is there something wrong with me? I find that that was more of an issue for me when I was in my 20s. Mm. I find that as, I suppose, as you get a little bit older, you, you become very aware of you're much more aware of your mortality and that you can't control things. And it's just, I don't necessarily think it was specific work. Well, I suppose it was specific work that I did in the past to an extent, but I think that you just become more aware of your mortality, just letting go of control a little bit. That's so powerful because oftentimes a need for control is fear-driven and letting go of control and and acceptance around the aspects that are out of our control is incredibly helpful. That is empowerment. The irony of empowerment is sometimes knowing where we need to let go of control. So it's magnificent to hear your evolution around some of these elements because as you know, you know, when we're in fight or flight or the perceived threat where health anxiety is a fear of an undiagnosed serious health problem can cluster around a need for certainty when there is no certainty and often the overchecking and the doctor shopping and things of that nature or avoidance when there's things that you would otherwise love to be doing, you know, potentially people can lean into avoidance. So it's brilliant to hear that you have stood up to some of those things and building acceptance around the things that are out of your control. Really often with a picture of health anxiety, it is oftentimes the story that you've described where there is some historical traumatic life experience with a loved one. And so when we can think about the logic of, of course, that makes sense that there would be a sort of a trauma reaction in the context that would lead into a story around health anxiety. So thank you so much for your transparency around that. That's so helpful and it will be helpful to a lot of people who are listening and watching today. So then you went into your 20s and moving forward through life. What are some of your other life experiences along the way that have sort of led to the person who you are today? So in my early 20s, I ended up getting a a soccer scholarship and moving to America and did my first degree over there, which was like the first time that I kind of left home, left Sydney. And that was just, that was brilliant. Just such an exciting part of my life and had amazing friends over there because we were all, you know, had 22 people in my soccer squad and had a ready-made group of friends there and I still stay in touch with them. And that was just so good traveling around the country and playing other universities and whilst I was studying and got to see a whole, whole bunch of America, which was really, really quite fascinating. And yeah, I think over there, I suppose you just hone your, I think sports amazing for teamwork, discipline working towards a goal, putting in effort to get reward and just moving towards a, a target with a whole bunch of other people, which has held me in good stead, you know, whether it's running a dental practice or, you know, studying hard for some of my courses. I found that when I stopped playing soccer, I was, like I said earlier, I was a little bit down about losing that identity, which was kind of, I suppose, attached to some sort of ego associated with that, which I now realize is, you know, not not beneficial. It's, there's other things to life than an identity around a particular achievement or sport. But yeah, I found that 
one thing that helped me during my my studies and my my health career is that I just applied some of that same work ethic that I had in soccer over to my dentistry and my my studies and and helping people to get healthier, which is what what inspires me every day. So I think that that Boston experience over in the States and playing professional soccer through my early 20s was just just a huge bonus for me and something that I could apply to other things, which has helped me a lot. Yeah, so true. I'm often drawing on my work with elite athletes and, you know, Olympians and looking at the factors and the strategies that elite athletes use in the sporting field to a corporate context as well in high performance leadership in a business space. And as well as in parenting, you know, there's so many core variables that help us across each of these areas. So, and soccer is so, such a brilliant sport in terms of it's so dependent on the team, right? And everybody's got to play their role. If you were to distill it down to some of the key factors on the soccer field that would really cultivate a high-performing team, what would you say they were? Definitely having a goal that we all agree upon. I think consistency of training again. I think people that look after themselves, you know, like if you have some dead wood in the team, you know, because they they don't have the same health values or they're, they're out partying or not going to bed early or doing all those sorts of things and then you start to see their performances drop off, then I think it, it's definitely helpful if they're, they've got that discipline around, you know, preparing for performance, not just the game itself. Mm-hmm. Um, that, that's a huge thing. And then an inspiring group of, you know, leaders in the team or, or a coaching staff that really motivate you and get, get the most out of your physical abilities. Absolutely. And in the coaches that you've worked with along the way, what would you say are the standout qualities of a good coach? I think people, the best coaches, the best people, they're normally those two things. They're good coaches, but they're great people. That's the first thing. I think that they know how to, they work out how to make you tick, what what inspires you and what motivates you. They're really good at honing in on that. They don't let their emotions get in check, but they show real emotion at the right times where it's relevant. I've played soccer for some real average coaches. What would be the aspects, the characteristics of the average coaches? I think just like almost a bit aloof, too arrogant. You almost get the sense that they're not, they're not offering a fair opportunity to, they almost play favorites mm-hmm. sometimes when, when it may not be deserved. Yeah. So I think that real obvious bias towards certain groups of the team is problematic because the best coaches make all 20, even though there's only 11 on the field, make the 22 or 26 person squad feel like they belong and that they're, they're a really huge part of the team and that there's an opportunity for them to get their chance if other people's performances drop or injuries happen. Whereas I played for some coaches that have just offered none of that, which has mm-hmm. been really, really demotivating. And what would be the characteristics that would be the most motivating? Like you mentioned, making sure that you are focused on everybody. What else in terms of that individual interaction would be motivating versus demotivating? I think actually pulling players aside and getting to know them as a human, because how can you tailor your coaching if you don't make time and effort to get to know the personality of your players. Mm. So, you know, the great coaches that I've played for, they've gotten to know me. They know my background. They know what my vulnerabilities are. What are the things that make me 
motivated one of the things that make me really want to work hard for the team they'll just say certain things at the right time it could just be something so simple just a phrase here or a phrase there and then all of a sudden you just want to run through a brick wall for for the coach whereas there'll be other ones where you're like i've got no interest like even though i'd always work hard i'm just not motivated to really strive for that person so it's just it's almost like a a mentoring pseudo father figure when you're like younger, you know, because I was playing when I was in my early twenties. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, you just want them to not let somebody down. They, they create that atmosphere where you don't want to let them down. It's quite, it's quite interesting to watch human behavior across that sort of sporting space. You can see people that really nail it and people that just get it quite horribly wrong. Yeah, it's fascinating. And I, I love hearing this about your experiences with good coaches versus not good coaches. I like to do an exercise with my clients around reflecting on the coaches that they've had along the way and really honing in on the qualities and the characteristics that really make a good coach. And then what can be really powerful is how we can monitor our own internal voice in comparison to that, because oftentimes our own internal voice can be like the worst coach in the world (laughs) because it's focusing in on all of the negatives and all of the not good enoughs. And it can be like this really demotivating critical voice, which could sometimes be characteristics of not such a great coach. But when you can think about, can you be inspired by those characteristics of some of the best coaches that you've had? And what was it about those individuals that were so inspiring? And can you try and emulate some of those characteristics and be your own good coach? It can be very helpful to hold yourself accountable to that. And yeah, I I love what you said about almost like the father voice, that kind, kind parent, because that in and of itself is such a powerful strategy for ourselves. Can we, you know, even in a trauma context, can we approach ourselves as the parent, can we parent the child within a, within ourselves, within our heart, the child that was hurting so much in the past? Can you be the parent of that child? And if you were, what would you say? How would you talk to the child? So there's lots of different nuances. I'd love your thoughts about some of this. What I was mentioning before about how if I imagined, like I see a lot of kids in my dental practice and I sometimes sometimes it'll just pop into my head like imagine they had to go through what what I went through and I'm not like I said I'm not saying I'm unique there's plenty of people that have gone through what I've gone through you sometimes catch yourself thinking about what would you say and do to them to make them feel better and it's it's an interesting thing I think that sometimes we can be so hard on ourselves um, internally kind of at the wrong times as well um, often when we start getting run down and a bit maybe burning the candle at both ends, taking on too many things, then you can start when you actually need to be really kind to yourself, you actually start being a little bit, I suppose, mean to yourself. I think one of the best things that I do is for myself is that when I start feeling that way, I almost like treat myself as if I was like quite sick. Like what would I do if I had a really bad cold? I'd rest, I would get some sunshine, I would eat healthy food, I'd get an early night, I'd watch a movie, I'd you know, just calm things down. You can feel when your nervous system's a bit amped up. We've all felt it. Like this modern world, I don't care what anybody says. We're, we're not equipped to like be 12 hour days 
hell for leather, doing this task, that task, mortgage, kids, house, car, holidays. It just seems very unnatural. We're so far, we're, we're advancing so quickly that we're so far from what we evolved to be. And so we'll, I just kind of think about what are some of the things that would get me more centered and it's nature, it's going to bed early, eating healthy food, being around people where I don't have to put in an effort. It's kind of filling up your cup, nourishing yourself and almost like pretending that you're sick, you know. I love what you're saying around really moving into kindness for yourself and that superpower of self-compassion. The other aspect to what you're describing about self-awareness and the power of self-awareness and self-respect as well, you know, really being conscious of what are the signs that your body is giving you right now? And it's values driven signs to say, I can't remember the word that or amped up you know, when we feel like our sympathetic nervous system is just really amping up too much. And so how can I down regulate? How can I take time to do mindfulness? How can I breathe? How can I self care? Is so wonderful to hear you say that it's not from a, a fear driven perspective. Sometimes health anxiety can get us hypervigilant to some of these signs. And and so it's being conscious of, if, is this a fear driver or is this a values driver? Is this my heart telling me or that, you know, kind, kind voice inside saying, you know what, Lou, you're working too hard right now. How about you take time to look after yourself and, and realign to balance and self-care? Because, you know, oftentimes if we're high performers, we want to just go, 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 go. And mm. that can sometimes tip us into imbalance and, and ultimately burnout as well. So powerful strategies there. Well done to you <laughs> doing so much. And clearly these strategies are working. And you mentioned the ice bath. So tell me a little bit about ice baths, because I know that this is a strategy that you do use. What is it about the ice baths? There's so much evidence base now to support cold and ice to do some things in the world of high performance and thriving. I've got an ice bath here at home. I went to a Wim Hof course. That's that crazy Dutch guy who can <laughs> do. Can yeah, I love, I love it. Absolutely love it. Yeah. So I went, I went to one of his seminars, courses, probably five years ago. We often did them over in the States. We would get in the ice bath after training, particularly in pre-season in Boston when it was like high 30s, early 40s during pre-season and it could get really, really warm. And yeah, I just find that I do one one a week. The research seems to suggest that for the, all the health benefits that you can get from it, which is recovery, mental clarity, um, there's this brown fat buildup that you get inside your body, which is been shown to apparently increase longevity. So I find that I do about 12 minutes. I try and get 12 minutes a week. So I just do two rounds of six minutes once a week or so. And then I obviously do cold showers in between there. And I find that I have the best sleep of the week after I've done the ice bath. It's almost like you get this adrenaline spike and then you come back down and then you get a really good night's sleep. You feel really relaxed pretty intense when you're in there if it's cold, if it's cold enough, sort of down to two, three degrees. But I do this breathing exercise beforehand, this Wim Hof breathing. And you can just jump, I just jump on YouTube, put it on my, my TV at home before I get in the ice bath, do an 11 minute breathing session, three rounds. And then that prepares your body to, to deal with the ice. If you just dive right into it, it can really shock the system. Yeah. So you have to prepare for it. Yeah. You just feel really good. You get a lot of mental clarity, really good sleep, good recovery. I'm finding I, I get less injuries. 
yeah, there's just so many health benefits. Obviously, I'd check with your with your doctor before you you go go into it and build up slowly. Certainly, don't dive into two degrees straight away. But yeah, I found it really beneficial. Knowing how rigorous you are around evidence base, I would imagine that, that you've looked into the science of it and uh, and there is a lot of science to it. I've been watching uh, Chris Hemsworth and his series Limitless. Have you seen that? I've seen snippets of it. I haven't seen the whole thing yet. Yeah. So there's an episode on um, his exposure to cold and the science to underpin these strategies, which is really interesting. So fascinating thinking about the constant evolution of science to underpin some of the strategies that we use to respect the mind, to respect the body, to, and also in the world of high performance, to think about what are the strategies that we can use to give us the next percent in um, in our professional life and in our personal life. So who have inspired you along the way? Lou, if you could think about some individuals you have connected with who have been inspiring or just really informative, what are some names that come to mind? Obviously, my dad. I've I've got a lot of lot of respect for him. He's uh, I work with him at the clinic, and thinking back to how he how he raised us through all that traumatic time, um, nothing but respect for him. And he certainly uh, has taught me valuable lessons of humility, humour, hard work, determination, humbleness. He, you know, he's got very little ego. So yeah, I think if I eventually have children, I think if I could be half the half the father that he's been to me, I'd be doing all right. So that's a the, the first one that comes to mind. But obviously, you know, my my uncle, I also work with him and he's been a big inspiration to me on the on the health side of things. You know, he's a dynamo doing a lot a lot in the holistic health space and has amazing connections and I've met so many amazing people through through him and the people that I work with, some of the coaches, my mentors um, through my soccer career, yeah, there's 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 a few to list, but they all have those characteristics that I that I talked about, you know, with my dad. Any books that you have read that have been inspiring as well? I've read some of your book. So. <laughs> Yay! <laughs> um, that was good. Um, yeah, uh, I enjoyed your book. I enjoyed David Goggins. Can't hurt me. That was a good one. Um, Fantastic. He's, he's a bit of a nut job, but. Um, <laughs> But uh, yeah, that was that was inspiring. I just really really enjoy reading philosophy. I think it's really interesting. Like the the ancient philosophers. Um, there's a really good book by Alan de Botton called The Constellations of Philosophy. Mm. And it's really interesting thinking about some of the the, the ancient philosophers because they just seem to so much of what they say is still appropriate today. You know, if you think about medicine and how far it's advanced. And then you go back to say, like the philosophers. We've, of course, advanced, but some of the some of the stuff that they say is just so on point, and it's just amazing that all that time ago they were just so so succinct and to the point, and quite often correct. And I love the idea of you know, there's these images in that book where you know you might you might hear a, a passage from Socrates or something, and that he's like walking around talking to citizens about what makes them tick and some advice that he would give them. And I just think that that would be amazing if there were philosophers walking around the city talking to citizens yeah. you know, in, in the modern world. I just think that would, I mean, obviously there's there's people like you that are doing it. You can seek out health professionals such as yourself. I sometimes think like that would be so amazing if they just plonked philosophers and psychologists on the, on the street and just touched touch base with people and because you never know what's going on in people's minds. We call it keynote speaking now. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Or otherwise I'm going to find myself a milk crate and 
stand somewhere. (laughs) And so for people who are experiencing anxiety and listening, hearing your experiences and how you continue to stand up to that worry story and realign to passion and purpose, what would be some top tips for people who experience anxiety to help them? Um, I think if it gets out of hand to seek assistance, there's there's no shame in it. You know, life can be tough. And so, you know, getting getting assistance can make all the difference. So that would be one. But also just thinking about every single thing in life, if you really think about it, like there's almost this negative stigma around anxiousness or anxiety or what have you. But if I think about everything in my life that's been important to me, there's been a level of anxiousness or anxiety associated with it, whether it's stepping up on the stage at a graduation or, you know, I feel anxious or whether I'm recording a podcast and speaking to a guest, there's a level of anxiousness. Before I would go on the soccer field to play a really against a really good team or any team for that matter, there would be a level of anxiousness or just doing a, a surgery at work. You know, there's there's some anxiousness that you want to perform at your best and you, you're really focused and it or, you know, on the starting blocks of a 100-meter race. Everything that's important to me and even jumping on a plane, going to on a holiday, like people get a, get a bit anxious. You know, everything that's good in life has some sort of anxiousness associated with it. And I think that if you if you try and suppress that, I just think you're not living your life. So that would probably probably be my my take on it. Oh, I love that so much. Absolutely right. We feel it and we lean into it and don't let it boss us around, but leverage, you know, the adrenaline that can happen sometimes if we fight it and try to suppress it, that can make it take us in in directions where we don't want to go. But if we can lean into it and leverage it and recognize that it's going to narrow our focus on the things that matter, um, it can be so powerful. I really love that. That's so incredibly helpful. And so I'm really Curious to know, Lou, where to from here? My goodness, you've done so much and you continue to do so much. What are some of the things that you would love to do in this next chapter in your life? I think just finishing off my, my masters over at Oxford would be my next, my next goal. I'm learning so many amazing things over there. And there's so many, so many different topics that we can cover. I'm not over the moon about the way health is kind of moving in the sense that we've got a lot of chronic disease. There's a lot of people that are confused about what's healthy and what's not. I think that there just needs to be more clarity around health. I think that there needs to be less less conflicts of interest and just get really independent, evidence-based health messages out there because and also just breaking down the social determinants of health because we all know that if you get 10 people in the room, doesn't matter what socioeconomic status they're from, and you say to them, do you think exercise and eating healthy is important? They'll all say yes, but will they be able to do that? I think we need to kind of work hard to break down the social determinants of health so people can live a really healthy, fulfilled life. So mm-hmm. I think after that, I'd, I'd like to try and influence that in some capacity, but I'm not sure how exactly yet, but I'm sure I'll, I'll spend some time thinking about it and come to a come to a solution eventually. Enjoy that. Enjoy um, staying true to your purpose and really shining the light on evidence-based medicine and evidence-based practice so we can really tip the balance in this world of social media where there's so much misinformation and people just get overwhelmed with stuff that can ignite their anxiety and tip them into overwhelm. I love the the work that you do and the information that you put out to really be true to good, um, solid information that is deeply 
embedded in science, which is everything that I love to do as well. So amazing. It's been so beautiful chatting with you, Lou. I'm so, so thrilled to hear about some of the things that are going on in your world. And it's just been such a joy to work with you over the years and um, to connect with you and stay in touch. Thank you for sharing things and um, look forward to staying connected. Thanks a lot for having me on the show. Appreciate it. Yeah, it's been awesome. Take care. Bye for now. Bye. Thanks for listening to Where To From Here. If you like what you've heard, be sure to click follow or subscribe for future episodes of Where To From Here via your podcast app. Leaving a review helps others find the podcast. And for more information, head to drjody.com.au or follow our socials at underscore drjody underscore.